Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you the next in a series of parallel papers presented at our 2010 annual conference, Beyond Therapy, Exploring Enhancement and Human Futures. In this paper presentation, Ryan Nash, M.D., explores the history and changing emphases in the hospice movement in palliative medicine. Dr. Nash's presentation is entitled, Enhanced Dying, Exploring the Dangers of Palliative Care Moving Beyond Therapy. Today, what I want to talk about is really thoughts in progress. I want to share some of my thoughts and get feedback from you. Let's start with the end. I'm a palliative care physician, and I think palliative care is a great field. It's serving those in need, serving patients with multi-comorbidity, with terminal disease or severe disease who were in need, and it's regardless of the stage of their disease. Working on the quality of life and bring these people to some sort of health. So the first premise is that palliative medicine is generally good. But I also want to start with the end and say, I think assisted dying, a.k.a. killing our patients, is bad. And I'll also say that I think some intentional sedation is at least problematic, if not bad. Not all. I mean, there, there are times and circumstances, and we can get into that in Q&A. But I just want to start with my end, so you know where I'm going. I think palliative medicine is good, but I'm concerned because I think that killing patients is bad, and intentionally sedating some patients is at least problematic or bad. Knowing why these are connected helps us know where to draw the boundaries and maybe correct an underlying philosophical issue that we have in medicine that can hopefully put a nice barrier between these things, although we've crossed the barrier in a couple of states already. But it doesn't mean we can't cross back. First, a brief history of hospice. Dame Cicely Saunders in, in the UK, the modern hospice movement, she's the mother of the modern hospice movement, started giving her first talks in the U.S. in the late 60s. The hospice movement in the UK was mainly an inpatient hospice house, a place for people who were dying, even though medicine, medicine wasn't delivering on its promise to save all from cancer mainly. People were dying for cancer, and they created hospice houses for people to come to die. Dame Cicely Saunders came to the US, was giving talks, talking about the need to care for the dying. This was reclaiming some things that were obviously done throughout medicine, but it gave a structure the Medicare hospice benefit was passed later, and we had outpatient hospices, mainly that started as nonprofit mom and pop places, people largely mid career physicians and mid career nurses that wanted to do a good deed, to go out and take care of people who had terminal illness, mainly cancer. And then in the 80s, hospice care shifted a little bit because of this rise in a new disease, HIV. People were dying, and specific hospices were built for people with this new disease. And more funding was brought to hospice and palliative medicine to help this new population of patients. And a barrier was broken where we weren't just talking about hospice patients as cancer patients, but hospice patients as those with a need. And then through the 90s hospice, which was the, the good oncologist who was wondering, how can I care, how can I relieve pain and symptoms for my patient? and they get into hospice and they, can, they learn how to do that at home, some of them started wondering, well, why can't I do that in the hospital too? 
why, why is it that my patient has to be suffering and hurting and not having good symptom control in the hospital, but as soon as I switch to hospice, as soon as I get them home, I can control things? So many people started wondering this and started straddling the fence, trying to do a little hospice work, a little hospital work, and palliative medicine was born really throughout the 90s and increased in the 2000s, where uh, when I was uh, contemplating a career in palliative medicine in the late 90s, um, early 2000s-ish, I was told I was committing academic suicide because it was new in major medical centers and no medical school really had a program. When I was looking at fellowship programs in the early 2000s, there was about three or four or five. Now there's 30. Almost all major medical centers either have a palliative care program or are desperately seeking faculty to start with so What we had was a recognition that denying death in medicine was bad in the 60s and this alternative movement to form hospice for the dying and to bring it to the community. And then we had a movement to bring the, the tools of hospice into the hospital and to people with other diseases besides cancer and a chronic disease, and that's what's been palliative medicine. So you can't think of palliative medicine as kind of the super group and hospice as part. That's just a little brief history of hospice and palliative care. So we had the technologies of hospice moving to the hospital and to the academy. Okay, not just the hospital, but now, now you have doctors studying it. The hospice movement in the U.S. was very much a nurse's movement. Even throughout the country now, you can find plenty of hospices that are, have physician rubber stamps. Physicians don't see anybody. They just supervise. It's really nurses delivering care. We're going to have, this is going to change because... This is now on the regulators know this, and they're really worried about scope of practice, and you're going the next wave of hospice hitting the news is going to be over scope of practice issues because nurses practicing medicine without a license and medical directors allowing nurses to practice medicine without a license isn't going to be taken um, well. But that's a whole other hour-long talk. It was a nurse's movement, but now it's moving moved move to medicine, to physicians, into the hospital, into the academy. Jeff Bishop is an ethicist. He wrote an article this last year in a theological journal, and I'll try to tie in some of his thoughts. He sets up in his paper the history of the change of diagnosis of death, seeing it as a move from the community where everyone knows they're dead because they've been dead for days to the rise of the need for specialists to diagnose death, and the need for specialists to diagnose death was largely because we needed new bodies for autopsy. And you didn't want old dead, you wanted fresh dead. Because fresh dead, you could dissect better and you could learn more about anatomy. So fresh dead was needed, and when we needed fresh dead, you either had to, robbing graveyards just wasn't doing the trick. It wasn't doing the trick, because the, the old dead just weren't as useful. You needed fresh dead. So either you kill people, which we know happened, or you have an expert in death, diagnosed death, and then you can do autopsies on people immediately. Some of the first hospitals were there to provide care for those that were dying, but one of the trade-offs is you got free care, but you also got dissected after you were done, after you died. So the diagnosis of death moved into a specialty and out of the community, and then, of course, with the rise of ventilators, and you can debate whether the Harvard committee was primarily worried about what do we do with these people on ventilators who had no brain function, or whether they were really worried about how do we get more organs for transplantation. Uh, decided to make brain death criteria. And brain death criteria have stuck. And most states recognize brain death criteria as death. But this takes not only a specialty, but a special 
set of criteria, and it places the death not in the community, not in the body, but in the brain. And Jeff goes on to talk about the rise of palliative medicine as trying to replace the community in many sense, that uh, the palliative medicine team and their emphasis of biopsychosocial spiritual medicine, so trying to address all the modes of suffering, which I think is a good thing, he has some hesitation about. He thinks palliative medicine is good overall, I think. He's concerned that palliative medicine, because of its movement to the physician, to the scientist, to the specialist, is not only going to try to redefine death, but it's going to try to redefine not just the bio, but the psychosocial spiritual, that it will be totalizing. He says it's totalizing care. When it was good nursing care at home, it was very much almost a reaction back to moving death to the community. And that's what we were saying then. I mean, that's what we say now often, is that hospice at home is trying to move the dying back to the community and that it's a benefit for the community, it's a benefit for the patient. So the fear of moving the death back to the academy and back to the hospital is that you have the scientist who's trying to redefine what the right biological death is, what the right psychological death is, what the right spiritual death is, what the right social death is, and we are going to exert our control. So we're going to be totalizing death. So we're going to have our specialists deal with having the right psychology, the right spirituality, the right social environment for optimal Die. You buy it? The movement to the scientist is a fear. And I think Jeff, and again, if you read, if you read Jeff Bishop, um, I, I commend him. I, I, would, don't, it, I don't agree with him on all points. I, I think he overstates his point. But I love his warning. I love the warning that he gives because he's right. We want control over things. So the one thing is the controlling nature of physicians and our, our desire to totalize death, to control death, to have control. The second thing that I think is a, a big issue, and inherent in this scientism, there's also a little thing I wanted to cover on dualism, but I won't. You know, dualism works both ways. We, we have this kind of new Gnosticism where we can say the body doesn't matter. The, probably in this argument, probably the most important dualism. I think the more Cartesian dualism is problematic too. So dualism aside, it's, if I had another 30 minutes, I'd cover it. The other big issue is a redefinition that's been framed as a reclaiming of a definition of the, of the duty of medicine. So what's the duty, obligation, um, a responsibility of medicine? Care, comfort, cures, well, one, some people will say it. And other people will say, cure when possible, care always. I like that one. I, I, I don't quibble with that. The problem is I see a lot of literature that will say the duty of medicine is to relieve suffering. Right? And it's, this, it's they're taking that comfort to a duty, okay? That sounds good on the, on the face of it, right? So as I was reviewing this National Educating Physicians into Life Care, I was reviewing the module on responding to a request for assisted dying. And over and over and over and over again in this module it said, the responsibility and the duty or the obligation of the physician is to relieve suffering. Well, hold on. I told the author, you just made your argument for why you should assist in dying. Okay? And I've seen this language, this responsibility, duty, or obligation language throughout the palliative medicine and the literature. If your duty is to relieve suffering, 
you have a, a mandate with obligatory success. This is like telling the oncologist your duty is to cure cancer. You follow me? You can't have a duty or responsibility with obligatory success. I mean, I know Yoda tells Luke Skywalker, do or do not, there is no try. But outside of the Jedi, okay, you can't have a duty with obligatory success. But this is what palliative medicine physicians think their duty is. I think that this reframing, we have two issues. One is the movement of death back into the realm of science and us trying to control everything. And then redefining the duty of physicians to relieve suffering. And the natural, the natural thing is, I, I, I can tell you, some patients are hard. And I can't relieve their, especially spiritual and social and psychological suffering. And I can't 100% relieve their physical. And if you make it a duty that I succeed in relieving suffering, I can only do that by sedating them or killing them. And... That is why these good-intended, nice, warm, fuzzy, kind hospice and palliative care docs are moving towards this because they think they're shirking their duty. And what we need to do is help them know that their duty isn't this. Their duty is to care, to try, to suffer with. That's just my take. Thank you. That was Enhanced Dying, Exploring the Dangers of Palliative Care Moving Beyond Therapy, by Ryan Nash, M.D. Dr. Nash is Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Gerontology, Geriatrics, and Palliative Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. A print version of the paper abstract is available on our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center, and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.